My name is Ian Urbina. I've reported on some pretty mind-blowing stories, but nothing like what happens at sea. If they got within 800 metres, that is when we would fire warning shots. Murder, slavery, human trafficking, and staggering environmental crimes. Men have told me that they've been beaten with stingray tails, with chains. If you really want to understand crime, start where the law of the land ends. The Outlaw Ocean. Available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Alex Bonetta. Traditionally, red-hot markets like Toronto and Vancouver are seeing fewer bidding wars. Meanwhile, sellers are getting a reality check. The national average price down nearly 12% from the same time the year before. Last spring, something unusual started happening in Canada's housing market. The price of a home was falling. In previous decades, average prices had sailed high above Canadians' incomes. And then, during the pandemic, somehow, prices rose even faster, thanks to low interest rates. But then, starting last April, something snapped. Toronto saw the average price of a home fall about 18%. It gave some Canadians hope that they could finally realize their dream of home ownership. And something unheard of in recent years is happening more frequently. We were able to purchase it under the asking price. Well, this year has brought us back to reality, an expensive reality. Prices have once again risen for the last two consecutive months. And last week, a report from RBC forecast that this quote-unquote correction is over, saying sellers are back in the driver's seat. For young housing hopefuls relying on a larger dip or even a crash, this reversal raises some tough questions. Is a real crash even possible? Would it do more harm than good? And can any amount of tweaking get us back to affordability in this market? To get some answers, I'm joined today by Mark Lee. He's a senior economist for the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, based in BC. Hi, Mark. Hey, how's it going? Well, thank you. Thanks for being here. So uh, we've talked a lot on this show about how and why Canada's soaring housing prices started climbing even faster during the pandemic. But in April of last year, that trend reversed. And so what was it? Why, for about a year, did we actually see housing prices drop? Well, I think a lot of the story is around interest rates. Uh, If we actually roll back the clock a little bit further to the 2008 to 2010 uh, financial crisis, the Great Recession, as it was called. In the aftermath of that, we've had a period of very low interest rates historically. And low interest rates mean you can borrow more money in order to take on a mortgage, and that pushes prices up higher. Then during COVID, as part of the emergency response for that, we lowered rates even further, essentially to the rock bottom Uh, in order to provide uh, liquidity to the economy. And indeed, people took advantage of those really low interest rates, and that pushed prices up uh, even more. As inflation has started to rear its head, inflation has become a top priority for the Bank of Canada. And and essentially during 2022, we saw a record number of interest rate hikes try to stem that inflation. So instead of buyers having FOMO going into the market, uh, people are now uh, much more reticent. 
uh, a lot of the more frothy investor behavior uh, pouring into housing, looking for uh, quick returns, uh, has pulled out of the market. Uh, and we're also, I think, at a point where people have maxed out their debt levels. So all of those uh, have pulled uh, the market back down. And now it's a question mark about where we're going right now. We seem to be seeing some new signs of upward movement in the market. Really looking forward, it's hard to say where it's all going to go. Yeah. And so like you've got the amount of homes being sold plummeting, but it's despite this apparent correction in the housing market, it's still getting more expensive to buy a home, right? So like the average person didn't really benefit much, right? Yeah. I mean, there's been a you know bit of a drop there. We're still at levels that are extremely high by any historical standard. And so, you know, rather than just looking at the, the price of a home, if you look at it relative to the incomes uh, that households have, you know, like a typical home would have cost, you know, seven or eight times someone's income, you know, back in the 1990s, and now it's more than 20 times. So it's a, a lot more of your income, of your life savings for a down payment, of ongoing costs over your working life to cover that cost of housing. Uh, it's just become so much. I want to spend today talking to you about the ways, in theory, prices could come down. Uh, let's start with what many young buyers have been pining for, a crash or a correction that would make prices affordable again. So if policymakers let unaffordability go unchecked, uh, what would it take for the housing market to suddenly crash? Well, I mean, first of all, you know, a lot of the reason real estate markets go up and down depends on the confidence uh, that people have. When things are in a down cycle, as they have been for now, uh, the concern is that if the overall economy weakens substantially, then you could have a number of distressed sellers, so people who need to sell because of a death in the family or because of a divorce. Uh, and they can hold out for a little while, but at some point they actually need to sell and they would have to sell at a loss. And then that sort of triggers where the market resets. So like, what would it take? Would it take like a massive recession? What would be required for that correction to, to happen in a substantive way? Well, a massive recession would indeed bring house prices way down, but it's potentially one of those pyrrhic victories. Uh, you know, if you keep your job and are, are doing well, then you're able to buy in at those lower prices. But the overall impact of those prices falling itself has an economic impact. So if you imagine that prices fell by half, then there's a lot of people whose nest eggs, you know, most people's wealth, to the extent they have wealth at all in Canada, is tied up in their housing. So all of a sudden, if the value of your house has dropped in half, then you're a lot more concerned and you're going to be spending less money uh, in the overall economy elsewhere. So these are, are real economic impacts that would, would sort of compound. Now, does that mean prices would crash? It's, it's hard to say that, that they would in the sense that uh, there's so much uh, demand that gets underpinned in Canada by high levels of immigration. So there's always people moving into the, the country. Not all of them are super wealthy, but uh, enough of them are that they can uh, keep uh, a floor under overall prices. But yeah, I mean, that's the danger is like you could see a situation where prices do actually fall and appear more affordable, but, you know, interest rates are higher and uh, the amount of income that people have, you know, in the aggregate anyways, uh, is a lot less. Yeah. 
Okay. So what about debt? I mean, what, how does the huge amount of debt Canadians are carrying factor in? I mean, yesterday, the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation said we have the highest household debt levels in the uh, G7. Yeah, I did some number crunching on this back in December. You have a whole sort of cascade of mortgages that are renewing and costing uh, the homeowners uh, a lot more money uh, to service them. So when you look at that and you look at personal loans on top of that and other like sort of home equity lines of credit and those sort of things, like the total increase in debt that needs to be repaid in 2023 compared to 2022, it's equivalent to like 2% of GDP, which kind of sounds like a small number, but that's enough to you know turn uh, a robust economy uh, into a, a slowdown, if not an outright recession. So we've talked about the potential shock treatment of a recession. Well, let's talk about a more nuanced policy-making approach. Over the last couple of years, we've seen a whole bunch of policies from different levels of government, ranging from incentives for new buyers to cutting red tape for development to a foreign buyer's tax. Uh, taken together, what effect, if any, do you think all of this stuff has in terms of bringing prices down? Like, will it do anything? I mean, some of these measures can have an impact. So if we roll back the clock to like 2016, 2017, there was a big surge of foreign buyers in Canadian real estate, particularly in Vancouver and Toronto. The British Columbia government brought in a foreign buyer's tax. Metro Vancouver's housing market has just been turned into a massive experiment. As of this week, foreign home buyers have to start paying a new tax. 15% tacked on to the purchase price of a home. Foreign buyers and then that was later uh, increased. Uh, the Ontario government brought in a foreign buyer's tax. With this tax, we're targeting people who aren't looking for a place to raise a family. They're looking only for a quick profit or a safe place to park their money. This 15% speculation tax will apply to uh, And in BC, at least where I live, the amount of foreign capital flowing in has really, it's not gone away, but it's you know gone way, way down. So those type of measures to put speed bumps, particularly on demand for housing, that's not necessarily what you want, like uh, people who are investors flowing into the market, they can actually work. I think too much of the emphasis has been put on foreign investors as opposed to domestic investors. Um, yeah. We're just as good at speculating domestically uh, <laughs> as foreigners are. And certainly what we saw in 2022 was a lot of uh, investors buying up uh, rental apartment buildings with the intention of like jacking up rents to make additional profits. So I think that's a big challenge. But if we're, if we're looking about affordability over the long run, uh, I think there's a few big structural things that we should be thinking about. Uh, one is zoning, which is the the density, the amount of housing you're allowed to build on any particular parcel of land. I think there's changes in the tax system uh, because the tax system very much favors homeowners over renters. But the final piece that I think is missing from the equation is around uh, non-market housing. That back in the 60s and 70s and 80s, Canada invested a lot in non-market housing, meaning it's housing that's not-for-profit. You know, you have a cost of building it, um, but you really just need to set rates at a break-even level, uh, as opposed to a private market rental system where you know landlords have an incentive to 
jack up rents every time a tenant lives. So I think like a really big build out of non-market housing, it's something that the federal government has talked about, but hasn't really delivered on. It's something that provincial governments talk about, but haven't really delivered on. Um, but that I think is, uh, is, is really what's needed right now. Hi, I'm Asha Tomlinson. And I'm David Common. And we're hosts of CBC Marketplace. We're award-winning investigative journalists that want to help you avoid clever scams, unsafe products, and sketchy services. Our TV show has been Canada's top investigative consumer watchdog for more than 50 years. But this is our first podcast. CBC Marketplace podcast is available now on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. So I want to talk about the politics and why some of these solutions aren't happening. I mean, it's worth raising the truism that governments answer to their constituents and uh, hardline measures to stop rising prices aren't universally popular in Canada. Like, I mean, it might sound obvious, but who in this country has an interest in keeping housing prices high? Well, all the people who are, are homeowners and landowners have an interest in keeping uh, prices high. Now, it depends on when you bought. If you uh, bought a place uh, 20 years ago and you've seen it, uh, increase in value fivefold, you know, you may not feel too bad about prices dropping a little bit if it means that your kids are better able to afford housing. But if you bought more recently at the top of the market, you know, you don't want to see house prices drop 30 or 40 percent because you might be underwater. Like the value of the, the debt that you pay may be greater than the value of the house that you're living in. And that would be a difficult situation. There's a lot of investors who bought in who are actually now facing cash flow problems because their interest payments have gone up so much, but uh, they're not able to jack up rents because of, of rent controls. Mm. So they have an interest in trying to keep all of those prices high. So it's about two thirds of households in Canada are, are homeowners uh, with or without a mortgage and only about one third are renters. And I think that the, the nature of policy that gets passed in Canada federally and provincially tends to be much more by people who are homeowners than people who are renters and reflects those interests. Well, the, the political math there sounds kind of brutal, right? You're asking a government to risk antagonizing two thirds of potential voters and maybe more if homeowners vote at a higher rate in the interest of uh, solving a crisis for the other third of the population. I mean, I'm just wondering whether you see any any governments taking actions or the actions that you think are, are required. Well, I feel like the push on non-market housing is totally doable. It wouldn't really challenge anyone too dramatically to scale that up. And really, it's just the upfront cost that the you know federal or provincial government would contribute to. Uh, but the cost of that housing pays for itself over time. Changes in the tax system, I would agree, are much harder uh, politically to enact. Here in British Columbia, to try to balance that out, the BC government just brought in a new renter's credit, uh, which isn't quite as generous and you know, obviously applies to fewer people and they've made it income tested, but there, it's a step towards leveling the playing field between owners uh, and renters. So maybe canceling the homeowner grant was too difficult politically, but bringing in the renter tax credit uh, was not. Uh, the final battle I think we're starting to see already, and I talked about earlier, is around zoning, that uh, people who live in nice, low-density, leafy neighborhoods want to keep them that way. They don't want um, new, higher-density housing in there. 
we need to break that impasse. And that's a challenge that I think provincial governments are starting to face, changing uh, unilaterally the minimum units and the amount of buildable square footage you can build on a particular lot. But, you know, that is a a political battle that's going to be fought. And, um, you know, I think things have gotten so bad in Canada that uh, maybe the, the public is willing to entertain more radical solutions. You know, we've been talking a lot about intervention in the market or even moves outside the market today. I'm sure there are people who will say, you know, market factors, supply and demand, best left to sort themselves out. Uh, but in your, in your opinion, are we at a point where cutting back regulations and leaving the market alone could fix the problem? Oh, absolutely not. I mean, I think it's the market that is driving a, a lot of these challenges. You know, what developers choose to build on a particular parcel of land, you know, they're capitalists. So they're trying to you know, get as much uh, return as they can on a particular investment. Uh, they're going to build condos to the highest end possible, or if they're building rental, they're building uh, rental that's going to be renting at, at the higher uh, market rates. Uh, they're not just going to build that you know, out of the kindness of their heart. So basically, if we're concerned about housing for low to moderate income households, they're simply not profitable for the development industry as currently structured. And that's why I think we need to look much more aggressively at non-market housing. In Canada, it's not a really part of the conversation because it's only about 4 or 5% of the total housing stock is non-market. But in other countries, it's much higher, you know, anywhere from 10 to 50%. Uh, and those, you know, countries that have had a, a much more successful government-led uh, approach to, you know, manage and regulate the housing market in the interests of the people and in the interests of the overall economy. Even like Singapore, for example, which is very much a market-oriented capitalist economy, has a housing sector that's dominated by a public housing developer uh, with the intention of providing affordable housing for its citizens. And there's a lot we could learn for that type of more hands-on approach. So you just mentioned Singapore. I've read about some of the interesting stuff that's been happening over the decades in, in Vienna in Austria. I mean, if you could take Canadian policymakers, put them on a plane and send them somewhere in the world to look at a housing uh, development or urban planning, where would you send them? And what what you what would you want them to see? Well, I think, you know, Vienna is certainly interesting um, because, you know, a long time ago, they built out a lot of non-market uh, rental housing, and it still constitutes something like approaching half of the housing stock in the central city. Singapore is a slightly different model where, I mean, they started out in a housing crisis in the 60s. They were building a lot of uh, rental housing, and they still do, but a lot of the emphasis is on ownership housing. So it's ownership housing that's on land that's leased for 99 years. So the state ultimately controls the land, but we have a, a version of that here in Canada. And Singapore is similar legal tradition to Canada because of British colonialism. But the emphasis is on 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 ownership and getting uh, young families into housing. They have policies to you know try to make sure that people can live close to their elderly parents so they can you know take care of them. They they're building in a way that has uh, housing in close proximity to shops and parks and other services that people need to reduce the overall environmental footprint. So I think there's a lot that Singapore's doing that we could emulate. 
you know, there's some of the political sides of Singapore. It's a more authoritarian culture, and there are some of the things we wouldn't necessarily do here. But, you know, in terms of how you get housing that's affordable for the vast majority of the people and do it in a big way, Singapore is a great model. Great. Uh, well, thank you for raising some of those examples and for, for talking to us about the, the, broader, uh, the broader challenge and uh, potential solutions. Uh, thanks a lot, Mark. All right. Great to talk to you. Thanks for listening, everyone. That's all for today's Front Burner. Talk to you again tomorrow. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.